Hi, welcome to this Cardinal O'Connor conference session on what does pro-life politics really mean? A 50 year historical survey. I'm Daniel Williams. I'm a professor of history at the University of West Georgia and the author of several books on American religion and politics and the abortion debate, including Defenders of the Unborn, the pro-life movement before Roe v. Wade. I spent the last few years studying the history of the pro-life movement in the United States. And what I want to do today is something a little bit different from what I've done before, because we're at an unprecedented moment in the abortion debate in America. We're at the moment where it's quite plausible that Roe v. Wade could be overturned in just a few months, as most of you know. Of course, that's not certain. The pro-life movement has been surprised before about what the Supreme Court is going to do, most notably in Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992, when a lot of pro-lifers expected that Roe v. Wade would soon be overturned. And of course it was not, it was instead upheld. So we could be in for an unfortunate surprise, but if the legal analysts are correct, there's a high probability that the Supreme Court might either completely overturn Roe v. Wade or at least radically roll back some of its provisions and some of the provisions of Planned Parenthood versus Casey. So not surprisingly, this is a moment when a lot of pro-lifers are excited and we want to know what next. As a historian, I want to use a 50-year retrospective on the pro-life movement since the moment just before Roe v. Wade and talk about where the pro-life movement is likely to go after June 2022. Because if Roe v. Wade is repealed, it's probably not going to result in exactly what a lot of pro-lifers expect. A lot of people who would like to protect the unborn are probably going to be disappointed at what actually happens in the aftermath of Roe v. Wade. And I think some lessons from the early years of the pro-life movement will be helpful in understanding how we got to this moment, what are the challenges that remain, and how can those challenges best be addressed. So first of all, to just talk about where we are at the present moment, if Roe v. Wade is repealed, we're likely to see abortion become mostly illegal in much of the South and, and parts of uh, the Mountain West and Great Plains uh, and, and a few places in the Midwest. But substantial areas of the country where the largest abortion providers currently reside in, in California, New York, and elsewhere are highly unlikely to legislate against abortion. And on the contrary, they're likely to expand abortion access. And so the end of Roe v. Wade is not likely to mean uh, the end of abortion in America or anywhere close to that. Instead, it's going to continue a, a political divide. And then the question is, how do pro-lifers respond to that? It's worth remembering that before Roe v. Wade, abortion was legal uh, in a number of places in the country. And there were more than 500,000 legal hospital abortions performed even before Roe v. Wade in, in the year 1972. Uh, a large uh, number of those, at least 200,000 of those were performed uh, in New York State, mostly in New York City, which advertised its abortion services uh, in areas well outside of the state. This particular photo seems to have been taken in Western Pennsylvania, but it could have been taken uh, in Michigan or any number of other places where New York abortion providers advertised. And so we may see the same thing today if Roe v. Wade is overturned. We may see people crossing state lines in greater numbers to obtain abortions. In other words, 
the end of Roe v. Wade is not the end of legal abortion in the United States, nor will it mean the establishment of a culture of life. And I think pro-lifers are going to have to start asking the question, as we think about a post-Roe future, are we going to prioritize protecting the protecting unborn human life in state laws. And in fact, that has generally been the strategy of the pro-life movement up to this point. Or are we going to attempt to reduce the abortion rate, that is the number of abortions in America, through measures that might not be directly related to abortion? Now, for the most part, over the last 50 years, the vast majority of people in the pro-life movement have chosen choice number one rather than choice number two. But in this presentation, I want to look at why that choice was made and then ask the question, was it the best choice or is it the right choice for this current moment? Is it time to broaden our strategy to rethink the definition of what it might mean to be pro-life and to look at ways in which pro-life politics could mean more than simply legislating against abortion? That there might be more effective ways to protect unborn human life and reduce the number of abortions in America. We'll come back to that that question near the conclusion of this presentation. But first, what I want to do is to give you a historical survey of some of the reasons why the pro-life movement chose to prioritize changes in abortion law through its political strategy rather than something else. And I think the, the first answer to that question is that the pro-life movement developed as a human rights movement against utilitarianism. The argument in the 1930s that propelled the pro-life movement into being was an argument of people who were operating in a, in a culture in which the vast majority of states, nearly all states, had uh, fairly strong laws against abortion. And a, a handful of doctors, mostly doctors and some lawyers, argued that those laws were, were ineffective. They were not being enforced. Now, that was true. Uh, the most conservative estimates that I've seen that are reliable estimates suggest that in the 1930s, at least 200,000 women per year were having abortions, illegal abortions. And so a, a few doctors like Frederick Tausig and A.J. Ranji and others said that perhaps it was time to legalize abortion for at least certain reasons. Now, in response, a pro-life movement developed that argued that that particular argument was a utilitarian argument. It was saying that since illegal abortions are, are causing women's uh, deaths, they're, they're at the very least causing harm to women and they're ineffective, therefore we simply need to give up and allow abortion at least for certain reasons. That is essentially a utilitarian argument which is saying that the absolute human right to life for the unborn doesn't matter anymore. And this bothered uh, particularly a number of Catholics. Catholics uh, in particular had a strong natural law tradition that thought of human rights in absolute terms. And so they grafted this argument against abortion onto a political movement that was already advocating for the rights of workers, uh, for the rights of, of people to have a, a living wage, for the right of people to access education. And in the 1930s and the 1940s, 
they associated this first with the politics of the New Deal, which they strongly supported, and then with an emerging international human rights movement that they saw as a direct outgrowth of their natural law philosophy. And so as discussions were beginning in the newly created United Nations about what should be considered an absolute human right, the National Catholic Welfare Conference issued its own Declaration of Human Rights, which included the right to an education, the right to a living wage, the right to collective bargaining. Uh, it began with the fundamental human right from which every human right would proceed, and that was the right to life from the moment of conception. This was the most basic human right they believed, and it needed to be protected in public law, just as public law was expanding to incorporate a larger rights-based philosophy in order to produce a flourishing society. And so they saw this as very compatible with the New Deal and with the principle of human rights liberalism of the 1940s. To a certain extent, international human rights liberals were receptive to those arguments. The UN Declaration of the Rights of the Child, for example, that was adopted in 1959, guaranteed the rights of children quote, before as well as after birth. And a number of state and federal courts affirmed the personhood of the fetus in court cases in the 1940s and 1950s, that is, cases involving prenatal injury. In those cases, courts in a number of states said that, yes, the fetus is a person. And if there is a car accident, for example, that results in the death of, of an unborn child, the surviving parents of that child need to be compensated on the basis that that unborn child was in fact a person with rights protected in public law. However, in 1959, the American Law Institute, this national organization of lawyers that proposes a, a model legal code uh, every few years, the American Law Institute proposed liberalizing abortion laws in order to prevent the dangers of illegal abortion. This was the argument that doctor, a few doctors in the 1930s had made. It's a very utilitarian argument. It's saying that essentially there are dangers of illegal abortion and therefore uh, abortion laws need to be changed. In this case, they thought abortion didn't need to be legalized entirely. They were not yet proposing the legalization of elective abortions, but they were proposing the liberalization of abortion laws to allow for abortion in a number of cases, including rape and incest, uh, and dangers to uh, a woman's health or suspected fetal deformity. So in response, this emerging pro-life movement, which was growing at that time, made, again, a, an absolute human rights argument, this time grounding it not just in natural law or in the principles of international human rights, but in the Constitution. And so the Right to Life League in Southern California, which formed in 1966, uh, included among its members, uh, its leading members, the lawyer Walter Trinkus, who had as his major argument that the 14th Amendment protects the right to life of the unborn as well as those who are born. In particular, Trinkus focused on this particular clause of the 14th Amendment that nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And Trinkus and other pro-life advocates believed that if they could show from on scientific and philosophical grounds that the fetus was 
in fact, a, a person with a separate existence from their mother, then the 14th Amendment would be shown to apply to the unborn person. And therefore, abortion would continue to be illegal because liberalizing abortion laws along the lines that the American Law Institute proposed would be shown to be unconstitutional. So that was the pro-life movement's argument in the 1960s. Unfortunately for the movement, uh, it was not well accepted. This was a time period when that sort of argument seemed to be very compatible with civil rights arguments, with an emerging uh, constitutional rights tradition that, would, that favored expanding recognized human rights based on the 14th Amendment. Uh, and that's what Brown versus Board of Education was, was based on. That's what a number of, of other famous court cases of the Warren Court era were based on. And yet, when it came to abortion, liberals uh, were split on the issue. Some people favored the argument that the pro-life movement was making, but uh, a number of other people, uh, both in the Republican Party and in the Democratic Party, favored liberalizing their abortion laws on these utilitarian grounds, that is, on the grounds that those laws were ineffective and, and in fact, harmful to women, regardless of the personhood of the fetus. Now, the people who were most receptive to the argument that abortion laws needed to be liberalized were, uh, in many cases, Republicans, both conservative and more liberal Republicans. So on the conservative end, California Governor Ronald Reagan signed an abortion law uh, liberalization bill in 1967. Uh, on sort of the centrist conservative end, Maryland Governor Spiro Agnew signed uh, similar legislation in 1968. Uh, Spiro Agnew would go on to become uh, vice president under Richard Nixon. And then on the, the more liberal end, people like uh, New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller signed into law some of the most permissive abortion legislation of the time. So why did Republicans do this? There were Democrats who did this as well, but especially Republicans were likely to favor uh, abortion legalization or, or liberalization in the late 1960s and early 1970s for a number of reasons. One was libertarianism. Uh, Barry Goldwater, the Senator from Arizona, who was viewed as, as a leader of the conservative wing of the Republican Party in the late 1960s was especially receptive to this libertarian argument that the state should not interfere in private medical decisions. There was also the progressive uh, argument that especially appealed to, to more liberal Republicans, the argument that abortion law liberalization would bring the law into accord, into accord with modern medicine. And there was a religious freedom argument in this party that was still overwhelmingly dominated by Protestants that the pro-life movement was a Catholic sectarian movement. The Supreme Court had just ruled in 1965 that Catholic views on birth control uh, could not be used to stop women from accessing contraception, that women had a constitutional right to access to contraception uh, according to uh, Supreme Court decisions in, in um, the Griswold case in 1965 and this, the case Eisenstadt versus Baird uh, which expanded that in 1972. So at the time, large numbers of, of the American population and especially a number of Republicans were receptive to arguments that the pro-life movement 
was really a sectarian campaign that was making uh, dubious constitutional arguments. And for some of the people in, the pro, in what became known as the pro-choice movement, the arguments of population control advocates, which were gaining ground in the late 1960s, especially with the best-selling book, The Population Bomb, uh, convinced many people that, that abortion might not be such a bad idea after all. After all, if uh, the population was increasing at, at a faster rate than the world could support, which was the idea that was popular at the time uh, later, of course, this was, uh, this was shown to be largely uh, incorrect, that the, the world did not run out of food at the end of the 20th century, as some people uh, had predicted. Nevertheless, this, this argument that there were too many people in the world already uh, made some people more receptive to arguments that abortion needed to be legalized. But again, the pro-life movement, which was still largely Catholic at this point, pushed back with the argument that these arguments that were being made on behalf of abortion liberalization were utilitarian arguments that in Contrast to those, there was an, an argument of absolute human rights that one cannot put a price on human life, as Father Richard McCormick said. And this became the rallying cry for the pro-life movement in the late 1960s. The idea that, that just as the civil rights movement said that there were certain human rights that could not be violated because they were grounded in natural law and in the constitution, in the same way the pro-life movement was arguing in favor of certain unchanging rights. Now, when New York went further than most other states in legalizing abortion altogether up to the 24th week of pregnancy without any reasons being required for an abortion, and when 200,000 abortions per year were performed in New York hospitals after this law was passed because there was no residency requirements, so women could come from throughout the country and get abortions, a number of people who had been somewhat on the fence in the abortion debate decided to enlist in the pro-life cause. Uh, Evangelical Protestants in particular began writing against abortion in the early 1970s. Uh, they had been unclear about their theology on abortion. They had been generally opposed to it, but, but had not uh, spoken against it in such absolutist terms as many Catholics in the late 1960s. But once they saw the legalization of elective abortion, they decided that perhaps that was too much and, and they enlisted in the pro-life cause, uh, as did a few uh, mainline Protestants and, and a handful of, of Jews. So the pro-life movement was expanding in the early 1970s, and it was expanding precisely because of, of its progressive appeal. It positioned itself as a women's movement uh, that was giving women leadership uh, of pro-life organizations in the early 1970s on the basis that they were protecting the right of women to become mothers and, and protecting women's sexual dignity. In addition, this movement also linked itself with opposition to the Vietnam War. Now, there were many pro-lifers who did not make this move and, and who were actually supportive of the country's uh, military efforts in Vietnam, but a substantial number of leading members of the pro-life movement, including a number of Catholic archbishops in the early uh, 1970s, said that they needed to connect the cause of of defending against violence in the womb with speaking out against violence overseas. And that appealed to some of the leading liberals of the Democratic Party. For example, Senator Ted Kennedy, before he switched his position on abortion, spoke out in 1971 in endorsing the pro-life movement and saying that 
society needed to, to quote, fulfill its responsibility to its children from the very moment of conception. Uh, the Reverend Jesse Jackson, a civil rights activist who had been a, a young associate of Dr. Martin Luther King, was a pro-life advocate uh, in the 1970s. Uh, in 1977, for example, he wrote the article, How We Respect Life is the Moral Issue. Uh, in the National Right to Life News. And he said, quote, what happens to the mind of a person and the moral fabric of a nation that accepts the aborting of a baby without a pang of conscience? For these activists, the pro-life cause was a progressive cause, a liberal cause. And this was the image that, that many pro-life advocates wanted to give the movement in the early 1970s. But they were stymied by that because at the end of the 1960s and the beginning of the 1970s, the abortion rights movement remade itself. It had been uh, a movement that was grounded in utilitarian arguments and in population control arguments, but it became, after 1969, a women's rights movement, uh, a movement that made an absolute human rights argument. That is the argument that women had an absolute right to control their own bodies and to protect themselves against pregnancy, both before and after they became pregnant. And so that human rights argument was headed against the human rights argument that the pro-life movement had already been making. And when the Supreme Court in Roe v. Wade chose the abortion rights side rather than uh, the pro-life side in this debate, it then gave the green light to the Democratic Party, which was almost evenly divided between these two views in the mid-1970s. It gave the green light to the Democratic Party to side uh, with the, stat the new status quo, which was the side of, of the pro-choice wing of the women's rights uh, movement. And so people who had once spoken out in favor of, of the pro-life movement, like Senator Ted Kennedy, moved with their party on the issue uh, in the 1970s. Now, in response to Roe v. Wade, the pro-life movement decided to focus on one key priority, which was protecting unborn human life in the Constitution through a human life amendment. Now, this never passed. And indeed, the process of passing a constitutional amendment would prove to be much more difficult, not only for the pro-life movement, but for a number of other movements in the 1970s than, than most of them had imagined. But nevertheless, in the mid-1970s, this didn't seem to be such a stretch. After all, this was at the very moment when the Equal Rights Amendment uh, proposal, the, the ERA proposal that would have uh, protected uh, gender equality or sexual equality in the Constitution, this was, was the very moment when passage of that particular amendment seemed very likely. And there were a number of other popular constitutional amendment proposals that were, were circulating in the 1970s, none of which passed, but all of which at the time seemed to have a possibility of passage. And so the pro-life movement uh, jumped onto this bandwagon and essentially made the human life amendment support for uh, a constitutional amendment that would protect human life from the moment of conception in the United States, a political litmus test. That in 1976, for the major pro-life movement, for the major pro-life organizations in the United States, like the National Right to Life Committee, this would determine how they would support, how they would vote, and which candidates they would 
uh, support. And it, it led a number of pro-lifers who had been Democrats or who had been sympathetic to uh, the progressive or liberal wing of the Democratic Party to join the Republican Party when in 1976, the Republican Party somewhat unexpectedly endorsed an anti-abortion constitutional amendment for the first time. And this was partly because of the push by uh, pro-life advocates and especially Catholics for this human life amendment. And it was partly due to uh, Ronald Reagan's uh, endorsement of it, despite the fact that he had once been willing to sign an abortion liberalization bill into, into law in California. He had become, by 1975, 1976, a, a fairly strong advocate of the pro-life cause on the ground that the pro-life, uh, that the Roe v. Wade decision had interfered in the lives of families and had disrupted American family values. Now, as you can see from this photo, uh, at, in 1976, the vice president of the United States was Nelson Rockefeller, a strong pro-choice advocate. And the first lady of the United States was Betty Ford, who uh, just a few months before this had called Roe v. Wade, quote, a great, great decision. And so the Republican Party still had a lot of pro-choice advocates in very high positions uh, of power. Uh, and yet they could see where the, the votes were going. Uh, and when the Democratic Party uh, endorsed Roe v. Wade, they decided that uh, they would, would try to appeal to votes of, of Catholics and, and cultural conservatives by uh, taking the opposite stance. Nevertheless, the Republican Party was not particularly uh, eager to pass that human life amendment, and there really wasn't the support for it anyway. So pro-life organizations and pro-life leaders gave Ronald Reagan strong support in 1980 and again in 1984. He, he was elected in 1980 on a, a platform that called for a human life amendment, and yet it became fairly obvious that a human life amendment was not going to be able to get through Congress. Now, some pro-life advocates who had been political progressives, sympathetic to the Democratic Party and anti-war activists, were dismayed at this alliance between the pro-life movement and a Republican Party uh, politician who did not align with their values on issues other than abortion. So in 1983, Cardinal Joseph Bernardine, who was one of these people, led the US Conference of Catholic Bishops into endorsing what was called a consistent life or a seamless garment life ethic that, wanted, that would combine opposition to abortion with opposition to nuclear arms buildup and opposition to capital punishment. The focus would still be on law, that is trying to protect the unborn in public law, trying to pass this human life amendment. But as Bernadine said, one should not give up the values of peace, the values of, of advocacy against nuclear weapons, which would run counter to the Reagan administration's policies, simply because an administration happened to agree with one on abortion. But that consistent life ethic didn't really have the political saliency that Bernadine and others had hoped, because there were hardly any politicians who adopted it in its entirety. So people that considered themselves consistent life advocates really had no political home. The Democratic Party doubled down on its support for abortion rights in 1984. And what had been sort of a, 
a tepid acceptance of the status quo, that is a, an acknowledgement that Roe v. Wade was the law of the land, was now strengthened uh, to say, the, the Democratic Party platform was strengthened, that is to say that, that, quote, the fundamental right of a woman to reproductive freedom uh, was what the Democratic Party supported. So now it was moving in toward a more direct endorsement, a more comprehensive endorsement of, of abortion rights, which made it very difficult for people who cared about the, the rights of the unborn to protection, to support the Democratic Party. But then the pro-life movement also realized that it could not pass the Human Life Amendment. Uh, and so it turned to other strategies. So in 1983, the Human Life Amendment had never gotten out of committee uh, in Congress, but Senator Orrin Hatch proposed another amendment, which simply said the right to an abortion is not protected by, the, by this constitution. So it would have rescinded Roe v. Wade. It would not have protected uh, the unborn nationwide. States could still make abortion legal if they wanted to, uh, but it, it at least would give states the freedom to make abortion illegal. And that anti-abortion amendment proposal failed in a Republican Senate with about one third of Republican senators voting against it at the time. So pro-lifers realized that, that if they couldn't even get that amendment passed through the Senate, they, they surely would not get the Human Life Amendment, which would have been much more comprehensive passed. But at that moment, the Reagan administration introduced a judicial strategy to the pro-life movement and pro-lifers embraced this in 1983. They realized that the Reagan administration wanted to move the Supreme Court to the right, and that a number of the judges that were being nominated to the Supreme Court were perhaps willing to consider overturning Roe v. Wade, or at least restricting abortion. Maybe they were not consistent life advocates, almost certainly not. Maybe they were not even truly uh, pro-life believers, but at the very least, they might have reservations about the claim that was made in 1973 that the Supreme Court uh, had made that said that the Constitution supported the right to an abortion or, or protected the right to an abortion. So beginning in 1983, a number of pro-life organizations, while still saying that ultimately they wanted the Human Life Amendment, began giving greater priority to overturning Roe v. Wade through Supreme Court appointments. And this became the dominant strategy of, of the pro-life movement. And it's the strategy that probably most of you are familiar with because it has been the strategy now for nearly 40 years. And it was fairly successful. Uh, the Supreme Court in 1973 had decided Roe v. Wade with a seven to two vote. But by 1992, the Supreme Court was almost evenly divided on the issue. Now, unfortunately for pro-lifers, it was not divided in their favor. They thought going into the Planned Parenthood versus Casey case that they had five votes on their side. They actually only had four because Anthony Kennedy in a surprise moved to almost everybody, ended up endorsing the basic parameters of Roe and abortion rights in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Now, Anthony Kennedy had been Reagan's third choice for that position, had his first choice, uh, Judge Robert Bork been confirmed, it's, it's uh, highly probable, maybe even near certain, that the Supreme Court in 1992 would have uh, voted to roll back Roe. But that didn't happen, instead, it was clear that the Supreme Court had a five to four pro-Roe majority. And that's where the Supreme Court remained more or less uh, for several decades. So at the beginning of President Donald Trump's term in office, the Supreme Court was still divided uh, five uh, 
to four on the uh, issue of uh, abortion, even with uh, the appointment of Neil Gorsuch uh, right after President Trump uh, took office. But that changed over the course of Trump's presidency. So by 2019-20, there were many people who said that maybe the Supreme Court had a five to four majority in favor of overturning Roe, though there was some question as to whether uh, all of these probable anti-Roe votes, particularly um, Chief Justice Roberts's vote, would really fall into the camp of, of completely overturning Roe or whether it would just be rolling back some of the provisions of Roe. But now uh, in 2021-22, uh, with the current Supreme Court term, it, it appears that even with Roberts's vote uh, out of the equation, there are at least five justices that would likely vote to, to overturn Roe or, or perhaps would vote to overturn Roe. So the pro-life movement perhaps has greater reason for confidence in its decades-long quest to overturn Roe than uh, it has had at any point in the past. And yet it's worth remembering that this was this this campaign to overturn Roe was not the original strategy of the pro-life movement. The pro-life movement originally wanted to protect the unborn in public law. And that's not necessarily going to happen with the end of Roe. And so the question is, what next? How best can pro-lifers advocate for the rights of the unborn? Now, let me just say that in the last decade or so, especially when it appeared that the reversal of Roe v. Wade was not imminent, the pro-life movement focused most of its political resources on creating barriers to abortion access. And while that did succeed in making it more difficult, considerably more difficult for many women to access abortion uh, in parts of the South uh, and Midwest especially, the strategy was very unpopular with African-Americans who had been sympathetic to the pro-life movement's cause of protecting the unborn in, in public law, particularly when they saw that as linked with other progressive measures, measures to expand healthcare, uh, access to uh, lower income women, to women facing crisis pregnancies that some pro-life organizations had embraced in the early 1970s. But by the 21st century, when they saw how the pro-life movement had positioned itself and, and who its political allies were, and when it seemed to be narrowly focused on reducing uh, abortion access without offering a positive alternative to women who were facing uh, crisis pregnancies who were, who were perhaps low income women, they tended to uh, turn against the movement. So there was a political cost to this, but nevertheless, this strategy was successful at reducing the number of abortion clinics in the United States, particularly uh, in some of the more conservative states of the South and, and Great Plains. And so the abortion rate, for various reasons, declined. Now, there's a, a long-standing debate uh, that cannot be easily settled as to exactly what has reduced the abortion rate in the United States. One thing I will say is that the abortion rate uh, was reduced dramatically among middle-income women, but hardly at all among lower-income women. And I think that should be a reason for concern, that even without repealing Roe, the U.S. entered a state, uh, entered a phase in which the abortion rate, that is the number of, of women uh, per, uh, 
1,000 women of childbearing age, the, the percentage of whom would have abortions, the abortion rate dropped to the lowest level that it had been uh, since uh, 1973. But that abortion rate did not drop very dramatically for lower income women. And so today, about 75% of the women who have abortions would be considered low income. 49% are below the poverty line and 26% are, are considered low income. This is based on statistics from about 2014 to, to 2017. Uh, so they're a few years out of date, but they're, they're more or less current. And 85% of US abortions today are performed on unmarried women. But if we look at um, most of those unmarried women actually have a child already. 59% of the women uh, who obtain abortions today have, have at least one previous child, and 60% are in their 20s. Relatively few of them are in their teens. So today, if we're looking at the reasons why, who is most likely to have an abortion and why, the, the profile of the typical woman having an abortion is now quite different than it was, say, 30 years ago in 1992. The, the, the typical woman having an abortion today uh, is highly likely to be poor. Uh, very likely to already be a mother, to already have chosen life for uh, at least one child, but to be in a crisis situation in which she feels like she cannot have uh, another child brought into her home uh, in the situation in which she's facing, most likely being uh, unmarried and, and most likely being low income. So some people have said that the best way to reduce the abortion rate would be to empower some of these women to make uh, choices that would allow them to care for both themselves and their child, to expand healthcare access, for instance, expand uh, jobs access, expand childcare access, uh, and that sort of thing. We'll come back to that uh, in just a minute as we talk about that debate. So will the reversal of Roe in legal abortion in the United States? Well, certainly not. Um, what it will do is reduce, considerably reduce the availability of abortion uh, in a number of states. Most of whom have already been restricting abortion already, even without making it completely illegal. So if we look at the number of clinics uh, in these states that are likely to make abortion illegal, uh, starting with Mississippi, which only has one abortion clinic, uh, and others surrounding it, like Alabama, which has five, Arkansas, which has three, Louisiana, which has five, uh, the number of abortion clinics are, are, for the most part, going to be quite low compared to this, the states that have protected or expanded abortion rights. And so by my calculation, if abortion is made illegal in all the states that are likely to make it illegal, Alabama, Arkansas, Georgia, uh, Iowa, Idaho, Kentucky, Louisiana, Missouri, Mississippi, North Dakota, Ohio, Oklahoma, South Carolina, South Dakota, Tennessee, and Utah, about 74 abortion clinics will close based on the 2014 numbers, which may already be somewhat out of date. Uh, in addition, we have 28 abortion clinics in Texas that were operating before uh, this year. Uh, now, of course, they're for the most part, not operating because of uh, the Texas bill that was passed that's currently being debated in court. Uh, so those can be added to the number as well of clinics that would pr presumably permanently close. But even that number doesn't bring us to the number of abortion clinics that are available in a single state, California, and it barely exceeds the number of abortion clinics that are available in New York. So as this, those states legislate against abortion, what we can expect to see, what we're already seeing, will be expanded abortion access to non-residents in California and New York and possibly other states. And so we'll essentially turn the clock back only to 1972 uh, when there were still many uh, 
legal abortions in, in the case in 1972, more than half a million legal abortions uh, performed uh, in hospitals in the United States. And in addition, now the availability of abortion pills, which did not exist uh, in 1972, will further complicate efforts to restrict abortion at the state level, especially since some of the states that are supposedly hostile toward abortion rights, like Georgia, uh, have allowed uh, those abortion pills to be accessed by mail uh, through uh, women's telehealth. Uh, and even if that were not the case, uh, these state these pills could easily be smuggled across uh, state lines uh, with very little difficulty. So what does that mean for the best pro-life strategy today? It's, it's very clear to me that the end of Roe is not going to mean the end of legal abortion in the United States. And even as a number of states restrict uh, abortion access, maybe making abortion illegal almost entirely, there are other states that are going to expand abortion access in the aftermath of Roe. So we're going to see a further polarization in this country. The end of Roe will mean the uh, success of a longstanding conservative Republican dream of trying to roll back a, a decision that they that many conservative Republicans have long viewed as something that has interfered uh, in states' rights or in, in family decisions. And yet, at the, at the same time, uh, this is not really going to be the ultimate victory that the pro-life movement wanted. It's not going to be the protection of the unborn in public law. In fact, it appears that that protection of the unborn in constitutional law or in national law uh, is something that we're not likely to, to see at any point in the foreseeable future. And in the meantime, the question is, what do we do next? Now, there were some pro-lifers who were already asking that in the mid-1970s. So for example, in the Kennedy family, two people who had long been active in the pro-life movement, Sergeant uh, Shriver, and especially his wife, Eunice Kennedy Shriver, uh, had been uh, advocates of the pro-life cause and had wanted to link it to the progressive left. They were very critical of the pro-life movement's decision in 1975 to focus almost all of its resources on the Human Life Amendment, which they correctly predicted would never pass. And instead, what they wanted to see was a pro-life movement that would focus on providing positive alternatives to abortion, that is, providing resources to women facing crisis pregnancy, provide expanded health care, believing that that would reduce the abortion rate. And so that question that I asked near the beginning of this presentation, what would be the best strategy uh, would it be focusing on state laws or would it be focusing on uh, reducing the abortion rate through positive alternatives to abortion? That's a question that the, the Shrivers would have answered very firmly by choosing option number two, that is provide positive alternatives to abortion, believing that that was the best way to save unborn lives. Now, for the most part, the pro-life organizations of the 1970s rejected that argument uh, and it has not become the central focus of the pro-life movement at all uh, since the 1970s. But actually, the expansion of crisis pregnancy centers in recent years, as an adjunct to the pro-life movement's political lobbying, has, I think, provided a blueprint for what the Shrivers had in mind. That is, offering positive alternatives to abortion, believing that that is the best way to save one unborn life at a time. So when we ask the question, what would be the best pro-life strategy today? I would encourage you to think creatively. I would encourage you to expand your definition of what it might mean to pursue a pro-life politics. Because 
the traditional definition that we have been operating under almost by default, uh, that is focused on changing the Supreme Court so that Roe v. Wade can be overturned, may soon, in a matter of months, be irrelevant. We may soon be living in a post-Roe era, but that post-Roe era is not going to bring the promises that the pro-life movement imagines. And so it's now going to be a matter of going back to some of the original vision for the pro-life movement and asking the question, what can we do to create a culture of life in this country? What can we do to save unborn human lives? Thank you.